0: chapter three of summer days in shakespeare land by charles g harper this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three william shakespeare was but eighteen and a half years of age when he married legally he was an infant his wife was by almost eight years his senior but if we agree with bacon's saying that a man finds himself ten years older the day after his marriage the disparity became at once more than rectified she was one anne or agnes hathaway her father richard being a farmer of shottery the hathaways were numerous in this district there being at that time no fewer than three families of the name in shottery and others in stratford anne had no fewer than eight brothers and sisters all of whom except two are mentioned in their father's will richard who describes himself in his will as husbandman executed that document on september first fifteen eighty one and died probably in the june following for his will was proved in london on july ninth fifteen eighty two storms of rival theories have raged around the mystery surrounding this marriage of which the register does not exist it is claimed that shakespeare was married at temple grafton luddington billesley and elsewhere but no shadow of evidence can be adduced for any of these places all we know is that on november twenty eighth fifteen eighty two Fulky sandells and john richardson farmers of stratford who had been respectively one of the supervisors and one of the witnesses of richard hathaway's will went to worcester and there entered into a bond in forty pounds against impediments to defend and save harmless the right reverend father in god john lord Bushop, of worcester from any complaint or process that might by any possibility arise out of his licensing the marriage with only once asking the banns. these two bondsmen declared that william shagspear one thone party and anne hathaway of stratford shottery was and is a hamlet in the parish of stratford-on-avon in the diocese of worcester maiden may lawfully solemnize marriage together this document discovered in the worcester registry in eighteen thirty six is sufficiently clear and explicit but a complication is introduced by a license issued the day before by the bishop for a marriage inter william shakespeare et anna watley de temple grafton it has been suggested that as there were whateleys living in the neighbourhood and that as there were numerous Shakespeares also with many williams among them this was quite another couple while others contend that whateley was a mistake of one of the clerks employed in the bishop's registry and that the name of temple grafton as place of residence of the bride was a further mistake that being the place intended for the ceremony in any case the point is of minor interest for the registers of temple grafton do not go back to that date and the fabric of the church itself is quite new we do not know therefore where shakespeare was married nor when and can but assume that the wedding took place shortly after the bond was signed six months later shakespeare's eldest daughter was born for we see in the register of baptisms in holy trinity church stratford the entry fifteen eighty-three. MAY twenty-sixth, SUSANNA, DAUGHTER TO WILLIAM SHAKESPEARE The reason for the hurried visit of the two farmers to Worcester, to hasten on the marriage with but one asking in church, now becomes evident. They were friends of the late Richard Hathaway, and were determined that young Shakespeare should not get out of marrying the girl he had wronged, shall we say? Well, no. There have been many moralists successively shocked at this prenuptial intimacy and they assert that Shakespeare seduced Anne Hathaway. But young men of just over eighteen years of age do not, I think, beguile young women nearly eight years older. Anne probably seduced him, for woman is more frequently the huntress and the chooser, and man is a very helpless creature before her wiles. The extravagances of the Baconians may well be illustrated here for although the subject of shakespeare's marriage has no bearing upon the famous cryptogram and the authorship of the plays donnelly spreads himself generously all over shakespeare's life and light-heartedly settles for us the mystery of the bond re the marriage of anne hathaway and the license to marry anne whateley by suggesting that both names are correct and refer to the same persons He says Anne Hathaway married a Watterley, and that it was as a widow she married William Shakespeare, her maiden name being given in the bond by mistake. The sheer absurdity of this is obvious when we consider that if Mr. Donnelly is right, then the bondsman made the yet grosser error of describing the widow as a maiden. She was actually at that time neither wife, maid, nor widow. Again. Richard Hathaway, the father, made his will in September, 1581, leaving a bequest to Anne, to be paid unto her at the day of her marriage. She was a single young woman then, and yet according to the Donnellian view she was already, fifteen months later, a widow, again about to be married apologists for this hasty marriage jealous for the reputation of shakespeare are keen to find an excuse in the supposition that he was a roman catholic and that he was already married secretly probably in the room in the roof of shottery manor house which is supposed to have been used at this period as a place of secret worship but there is no basis for forming any theory as to shakespeare's religious convictions a yet more favourite assumption is that shakespeare and anne hathaway went through the ceremony of handfasting, a formal betrothal which although not a complete marriage and not carrying with it the privileges of marriage was a bar to either of the parties marrying another jack was thus made sure of his jill and perhaps even more important jill was certain of her jack but if this ceremony had taken place there would have been no necessity for that hasty journey of those two friends of the hathaways to worcester nothing is known of the attitude of shakespeare's parents towards the marriage nor has anyone ever suggested how he supported himself his wife and family in the years before he left stratford for london at the close of january fifteen eighty five his twin son and daughter hamnet and judith were born and they were baptized at stratford church on february second whether he assisted his father in his business of Glover, or helped on his farm, or whether he became assistant master at the grammar school, as sometimes suggested, is mere matter for speculation. John Aubrey, picking up gossip at Stratford, writes, Mr. William Shakespeare was born at Stratford-upon-Avon, in the county of Warwick. His father was a butcher, and i have been told heretofore by some of the neighbours that when he was a boy he exercised his father's trade but when he killed a calf he would do it in a high style and make a speech that may or may not be true but it looks as though william had about this impressionable age become stage-struck he had had numerous opportunities of seeing the players for his father had in his more prosperous days been a patron of the strolling companies both as a private individual and as a member of the town council in fifteen sixty nine two such troops who called themselves the queen's servants and servants of the earl of warwick gave performances before the corporation and were paid out of the public moneys a forecast of the municipal theatre and no doubt john shakespeare together with many other stratford people went over to Kenilworth during the magnificent pageants given there by Dudley, Earl of Leicester, in 1575, in honour of Queen Elizabeth, taking with him his little boy, then eleven years of age. Thus would the foundations of an ambition be laid. At this time, 1585, John Shakespeare's affairs, from whatever cause, were under a cloud. They had been declining since 1578, when he had been obliged to mortgage some of the property that had been his wife's, and now he was deprived of his alderman's gown. William, about this time, whether in 1585 or 1587 is uncertain, left Stratford for London, whither some of his boyhood's friends had already preceded him, among them Richard Field. Stratford at this time was certainly no place for William, if he wished to emulate Dr. Samuel Smiles' worthies, and conform to the gospel of getting on in the world, the most popular gospel ever preached. In 1587 Nicholas Lane, one of his father's creditors, sought to distrain upon John Shakespeare's goods. But the sheriff's officers returned the doleful tale of no effects. And so he had his trouble for nothing. It is, however, curious, that even when reduced to his last straits, John Shakespeare never sold his property, the house in which he lived, and carried on business, in Henley Street. In addition to the discredit attaching to being thus one of the Shakespeare's who had come down in the world, William, according to the very old, strong, and persistent tradition, was at this time showing a very rackety disposition. He consorted with the wilder young men of the town, and went on drinking bouts with them. Sometimes, with them, he raided the neighbouring parks, and killed the deer and poached other game. And the old tradition hints that, on these occasions, the others made good their escape, and Shakespeare was generally caught. Sir Thomas Lucy of Charlecote, who was the chief sufferer from the exploits of these youths, is said to have had Shakespeare whipped, imprisoned, and fined for his part in them to london therefore william shakespeare made his way with what credentials if any did he go he had friends in london among them richard field a schoolfellow who in fifteen seventy nine had gone thither to become apprentice to a printer and in fifteen eighty seven about this time when shakespeare left home had set up in business for himself and become a member of the stationers company shakespeare may quite reasonably have sought his help or advice and certainly Field six years later published Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, dedicated to Henry Wriothesley, Earl of Southampton, the foremost literary and dramatic patron of the age, from whose friendship and powerful aid all intellectual aspirants hoped much. It is quite likely that Shakespeare left Stratford with a company of travelling actors, and reaching town with them, gradually drifted into regular employment at one of the only two London theatres that then existed. The theatre, and the curtain, both in Shoreditch. It is of some interest to speculate upon the manner in which Shakespeare journeyed to London, and the way he went. Was he obliged to walk it, in the traditional manner of the poor countryman seeking his fortune in the great metropolis? Or did he make the journey by the carrier's cart, there are two principal roads by which he may have gone by newbold on stour long compton chapel house and woodstock to oxford beaconsfield and through high wycombe and uxbridge ninety-five miles or he might have chosen to go by eddington pillerton priors sunrising hill roxton and banbury through einhoe bicester aylesbury tring and watford to London ninety two and three quarter miles. Such an one as he would probably first go to London by way of Oxford, for like Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure, he would doubtless think it a city of light. There are traditions at Oxford of Shakespeare's staying at the Crown Inn in Cornmarket in after years. Sometimes he would doubtless go by the Banbury and Bicester route, and along it at the village of Grendon Underwood to the left of the road between Bicester and Aylesbury, as you journey towards London, there still linger very precise traditions of Shakespeare having stayed at what was formerly the Old Ship Inn. Grendon Underwood, or Under Burnwood, as it is styled in old records, appears in an old rhyme as, the dirtiest town that ever stood. But it was never a town, and whatever may once have been its condition, it is no longer dirty it is not at first sight easily to be understood why shakespeare or any other traveller of that age journeying the long straight stretch of the old roman road the aikman street between bicester and aylesbury should want to go a mile and a quarter out of his way for the purpose of visiting this place but that they did so is sufficiently proved by the comparative importance of the house that was until about a hundred and twelve years ago the old ship and is now known as shakespeare farm It is certainly too large ever to have been built for an ordinary village inn, and is said to have formerly been even larger. If, however, we refer to old maps of the district, it will be found that, for some unexplained reason, the ancient forthright Roman road had gone out of use, and that instead of proceeding direct along the Aikman Street, the wayfarers of old went a circuitous course, through Grendon-Underwood. When this deviation took place does not appear, but it was obviously one of long-standing. The first available map showing the roads of the district is that by Emanuel Bowen, 1756, in which the Aikman Street is not shown, the only road given being that which winds through Grendon. The next map to be issued, that by Thomas Jeffreys, 1788, gives the Aikman Street running direct, between point and point, and avoiding Grendon, as it does now that was the great era of turnpike acts providing for the repair and restoration of old roads and the making of new and this was one of the many highways then restored the old ship inn at grendon underwood at which shakespeare and many generations of travellers had halted at once declined with the making of the direct road and soon retired into private life the shakespeare tradition comes down to us through john Aubrey who writing in sixteen eighty says the humour of the constable in midsummer night's dream he happened to take at grendon in bucks i think it was midsummer night that he happened to lie there which is the road from london to stratford and there was living that constable about sixteen forty two when i first came to oxon the village constable referred to was well known to one josiah howe son of the rector born at grendon march twenty ninth sixteen twelve died august twenty eighth seventeen o one who told aubrey the story at oxford in sixteen forty two the lofty gabled red brick and timber end of shakespeare farm illustrated here is the earlier part of the building although the whole of it is probably as old as shakespeare's time that earlier wing the part to which tradition points is not now occupied, and is, in fact, in a very dilapidated condition, occasional floorboards and even some of the stairs being missing. Where the wearied guests of long ago rested, broody hens are set by the careful farmer's wife on their clutches of eggs. There is little interesting in the architectural way in these dark and deserted rooms, but the flat, pierced, wooden banisters of the staircase are genuinely old and quaint. End of chapter 3